scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of John. As we continue on to the end of John's Gospel, we are in chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Let's pray that God would bless the reading and hearing of his word. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, and feed us by your word, that we may be nourished today in the ways of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We can only imagine what Peter had been going through since that horrible night that Jesus had been betrayed and arrested. It had been at least a little over a week, if not longer, since that night. Jesus' arrest, his trial, his beating, his brutal death had certainly been quite enough to traumatize all of the disciples. But on top of all of that, Peter must have also been trying to sort out his personal failure surrounding those events. All of the disciples had fled. They had deserted Jesus. But Peter had not simply deserted Jesus. He had also denied Jesus. And he hadn't just denied Jesus once, he had denied Jesus three times. It had all played out just as Jesus had told him it would, even though Peter had declared that even if the others fell away, that he would not. Even though Peter had insisted that he would lay down his life for Jesus if it came to that. And now, can you imagine the personal shame? the embarrassment, the guilt that Peter must have been experiencing during this time. 
There was indeed the joy of learning that Jesus was alive again, that he had been resurrected, the joy of experiencing the resurrected Christ, but that would not have removed the stain on Peter's conscience for denying Jesus, especially in his time of need. Perhaps you can recall a time in your life when you failed one whom you dearly loved in some way. And you can remember the agony that this caused you. But you could probably take the shame and embarrassment of that instance in your life and you could multiply it many times over. Could there be anything worse than failing as Peter had? Could there be anything worse than failing Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the one who was without sin, who became sin for us that we might be saved from our sin and from death? Could there be anything worse than denying Jesus? Not once, not twice, but three times. And this had happened to the same man who was so sure of himself and so sure of Jesus when many others were turning away. Jesus had asked the disciples if they too were going to turn away in John 6 after many had been offended and left him when Jesus called himself the bread of life. Peter was the one who had spoken up saying, Lord, to whom whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when Jesus asked the disciples at Caesarea Philippi who people said that he was, the disciples gave a variety of answers. But it was Peter who spoke up when Jesus asked them who they said he was. You are the the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was also the one who had attempted to defend Jesus with his sword, cutting off the high priest's servant's ear in the garden as Jesus was being arrested. Peter was always the one who seemed so confident, so sure. He was the one you would have least expected this failure from, which perhaps makes it all the worse. So on top of all of the shock and trauma of what had occurred in recent days, Peter must have had some deep regret that he had been carrying around since that night. It's not something that you just shake off and move on from easily. I know that if it had been me, that this is something that would have been eating away at me. It would have caused me to lose sleep. And so we don't need a commentator to tell us what's happening here in this passage this morning as the scene shifts from Jesus and the seven disciples to focus just on Jesus and Peter. This is one of the previously unanswered questions that we have from the passion narrative. What happens with Peter after his threefold denial of Jesus? How is he set right with Jesus? And even as we might miss some of the subtleties of the passage, for instance, that this conversation between Jesus and Peter is happening here in the midst of a charcoal fire, which recalls a charcoal fire that Peter had been warming himself by when he denied Jesus. Nonetheless, we understand generally what is happening. John answers our questions by giving witness to this scene in which Jesus addresses the failure with Peter by questioning Peter's love for him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And we see in Jesus his great tenderness and love restoring and 
reinstating Peter. It, it really is an amazing scene that John provides us the privilege of being privy to. He allows us to be a fly on the wall, as it were, for this conversation. And there is much that we could push into in this passage. We could push into the forgiveness, the forgiving love of Jesus. We could push into the problem of pride and the need for humility in our relationship with Jesus, how we shouldn't overestimate ourselves. We could push into the way in which a sinner is restored as Jesus forces Peter to confront the reality of his failure by taking him right back to the point of his failure. We could push into the seriousness of denying Jesus. This would have been of, of great concern for the early church, which was under constant threat of persecution. It is a documented reality for early Christians. They were forced to deny Jesus or face serious punishment or even death. And this passage demonstrates that these sorts of failures are not unforgivable, but also that those who have failed should not be reestablished without having their commitments questioned and tested. In other words, denying Jesus is not something to be brushed off lightly. And the process of restoration is not painless. Notice how Peter is grieved by Jesus' pressing him again and again and again. And while all these are important aspects of this passage and are worthy of our time and attention, what I want to focus on in particular this morning is the reinstatement of Peter. I, I want us to consider what Peter is being called to do here by Jesus. In Jesus's threefold questioning of Peter's love for him, he instructs Peter to tend and feed his flock. As one commentator puts it so well, off-the-cuff replies and well-meaning superficial responses to the risen Lord will not work in the call of Jesus to the life of discipleship. Jesus forced Peter to learn the hard lesson of a changed life. Everyone who follows Jesus must learn what real believing and loving Jesus means. You see, Jesus calls each of us to a life of discipleship. And what is involved in following Jesus will quickly expose a lack of true commitment and faith. For all of us then, when Jesus calls us to follow him in faith, we can't simply flippantly say, oh, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Jesus' response is, show me. D.A. Carson says it this way, Peter's love for his Lord and the evidence of his reinstatement are both to be displayed in Peter's pastoral care for the Lord's flock. And this is what Peter's reinstatement is centered on, his love for his care of the church. And we don't want to miss this lesson in this passage. It's, it's possible here that we get so tied up in, so focused on thinking about the great mercy of the Lord and the forgiveness offered here that we fail to think about what feeding and tending the flock means. So that's what I want us to consider this morning. But before we consider what feeding and tending means, there are some inherent truths here that perhaps should be obvious but might not be so allow me to point them out three things these are essential first 
The task of the church is not just mission. It isn't just evangelism. Notice that we have switched metaphors here from fishing to shepherding. We're we're no longer talking about being fishers of men. And that's because the concern isn't simply for the unbeliever on the outside of the church. It is also for the believer within the church. So now we're talking about the church's inward focus, the appropriate care of sheep within the flock. It isn't just the church's responsibility to bring unbelievers into the church. It is also the church's responsibility to make sure believers are appropriately fed and tended to. And there are some within the church who have the specific task of doing this work. This is what Peter is being called here to do. But all need to recognize their personal part in being a member of of the flock as believers in Jesus Christ. Second, Peter's reinstatement assumes that believers are actively participating within the community of faith. If Peter is being called to care for the sheep within the church, then it assumes first that there is a flock, an identifiable group of people to care for. And second, that he knows them and has relationship with them. Sinclair Ferguson has said very well, believing is belonging. If you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, then you belong to him and to his church. You are part of the flock to whom Peter and those who, like Peter, are called to this role are responsible to care for. In various ways, we often say here at Covenant that the concept of a churchless Christian is foreign to the New Testament. It's prevalent in our culture, but it is foreign to the New Testament. This is just one more passage that makes that very, very clear. Third, Peter is told to care for Jesus's flock. Notice the language that Jesus uses each time he gives instruction to Peter. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus always uses a personal, possessive pronoun when referring to this flock. This isn't Peter's flock. This flock belongs to Jesus. It is his, it is his possession, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and Titus 2, and as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. The church has been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. So everything here centers on the flock belonging to Jesus and Jesus being the true head of the church, as Paul lays out for us in Colossians 1. And this means that the flock is not Peter's to do with what he wants. Rather, Jesus has entrusted the flock to Peter, and it's understood that Peter is to care for the flock just as Jesus has demonstrated that they should be cared for in his own life in ministry. Peter is to follow Jesus' example in feeding and tending the flock. And by doing so, point the flock to their true shepherd, Jesus. If the church is to be alive, then it must be connected to, guided by, empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. A body detached from its head is dead. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to be a decapitated church. The work that Peter is called to do, and this applies to everyone called to the same role as Peter as pastors and elders. 
It's to live in submission to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So Jesus calls Peter to follow him in his role as the great shepherd of the sheep. And Peter then is being called to be an under shepherd of the good shepherd. But even more simply, in caring for the flock, Peter is also demonstrating his love for Jesus. Loving the flock is how Jesus is calling Peter to love him. And by the way, whether you have been called to a leadership role in the church or not, the same thing applies to you. Your love for the church will, in a very real and tangible way, show the genuineness of your love for Jesus. If you despise, deny, discount your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you should be examining your devotion to the Lord. All right, now with those things laid out, What does it mean to feed and tend the sheep? Let's start with what it means to feed the sheep. Obviously, we aren't thinking about physically feeding God's people. Although Jesus did, in his earthly ministry, demonstrate attention to people's physical needs. That's not unimportant. But but we're thinking in terms of spiritual food. What is our spiritual food as believers? And I think we all know the answer. It is God's word. We are nourished in the faith by way of a steady diet of God's word. If we want to live and grow as Christians, then we must feast on God's word. After all, how else do we know God? How how will we know of his character, his holiness, his majesty, his power, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his saving grace, unless we know his word? How will we know of the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ? How will we know of God's will? How will we know what he requires of us? How will we know how to live as followers of Jesus unless we know his word? So those called to pastoral ministry are called to preach and teach God's word. This is a primary concern. And those called to be shepherds of God's flock must be diligent to make sure that God's word is being proclaimed, that good doctrine is being taught, that the faith once delivered to the saints is known and understood among those entrusted to his care. A shepherd would be very negligent in his duty if he didn't make sure the flock entrusted to his care was receiving proper nourishment, wouldn't he? What would we say of a shepherd who is leading around a bunch of malnourished sheep? So a shepherd is to make sure the sheep are well fed. Now, how about tending? What is Jesus calling Peter to when he instructs Peter to tend his sheep? Not surprisingly, this word is a shepherding word. It's used to speak of herding, of pasturing, of taking care of sheep. And so we can think of the general work of a shepherd. They're not only to guide their sheep to green pastures to eat. They're not only to lead them to calm waters to drink. They were also responsible for protecting them from predators like wolves, right? They were to keep up with all of the sheep, searching out the lost sheep and carrying them back into the fold, caring for sick and injured sheep, helping to to bind up their wounds disciplining straying sheep who were exposing themselves to danger. These are some of the things that shepherds are responsible for and require their constant care and attention. 
And so shepherds within the flock of God are to do likewise. They are to protect God's people from false teachers and bad doctrine. They are to track down those in the church who have wandered and strayed. Some need to be lovingly guided back. Others need to have the rod of discipline applied for the sake of restoring them to the fold and encouraging them to avoid placing themselves in mortal danger again. They are to attend to the sick and injured ministering to them as to demonstrate God's presence with them and care for them. So these are the things that shepherds with God's flock, the pastors, the elders, are called to do. Jesus then isn't merely calling Peter here to hold some office. As D.A. Carson points out, this ministry is described in verbs, not nouns. Therefore, we as Christians should expect these things of those called to the role of elder within the church. Being a pastor, being an elder, isn't just some title of prominence. It is a position which holds tremendous responsibility and demands action, feeding and tending God's flock. It's a high and holy calling to serve Jesus by leading others to look to Jesus for all of their satisfaction and needs. But brothers and sisters, there's another side to all of this, isn't there? And we see this in the New Testament. We see Peter giving instruction to the elders in 1 Peter 5 concerning this responsibility they have. Listen to what he says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. This is what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter instructs the elders, shepherd the flock well, willingly, eagerly, leading by example that you might not be put to shame when Jesus returns. That's a serious instruction. But Peter will also give an instruction to the congregation. This is what he says. Be subject to the elders. There isn't just instruction for the elders. There's also corresponding instructions to the congregation. Be subject to the elders' shepherding. And what does Paul tell the Ephesian elders as recorded in Acts chapter 20? He says this, Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And he warns them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul instructs the elders to be alert. So Paul also here uses the shepherding language and tells the elders to shepherd the flock well, protect those whom God has made you overseers. They belong to God, obtained by the precious blood of Jesus. But on the other side of that instruction, we have the instruction found at the end of Hebrews, where the church is correspondingly commanded, obey 
your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, submit yourself to the shepherds that have been placed over you. Work with them for your sanctification. Obey them. You should want for them to be able to give a joyful account on your progress in the faith. You should not want for them to have to groan to the Lord that you are a defiant and stubborn sheep. That would not be to your advantage or the elders who will have to give account for you. So we need to see that Jesus' words to Peter here in John 21 aren't just instructions given to those called to the role of elder. In telling the elders what their responsibilities are, it is inherently giving instruction to the rest of the church. For if the pastors are to shepherd the flock, what is the flock supposed to be doing? And there's a very obvious answer to this. Be shepherded. This is the means by which Jesus has ordained that his people be fed and cared for. He has created leadership in the church and called his people to submit to that leadership. But let's just acknowledge, let's just acknowledge how outrageous that sounds in our current cultural context. The prevailing spirit of our culture is self-determination. It's individual freedom, not submission to another. And the result is that there are far too many self-professed Christians in our culture who want a church where they can go and, and just be anonymous, where they can go and worship and not really be noticed and definitely not be held accountable. Many in our culture have convinced themselves that no submission is needed to live faithfully and to have a true Christian experience. And maybe if we're honest, then we ourselves aren't entirely comfortable with this idea of being in submission to someone else, even in the church. We're a little suspicious of that idea because it puts people in positions of power over us, and we've all seen power abused. And perhaps we've been victims of that sort of abuse. But at its root, we just don't like to submit ourselves to anyone. And it certainly doesn't help that church in our culture is a place that we go once a week to hear an inspiring message, not a community to which we belong and are accountable. For many self-proclaimed Christians in our culture, the primary reason for being involved in a church and knowing the pastor on some level is simply to have someone to do their funeral. And we've moved so far away from biblical Christianity that some in our culture just expect to have a pastor do their funeral even without being involved in a church family, even without being a member of the church because this is what culture's view of the pastor is now. It is someone who does funerals and weddings, right? That's all we're good for. We work one day a week and we do funerals and weddings. Beloved. Beloved, we need, to be, we need to be more concerned about growing in faith now than we are about a service that will take place after we are dead and gone from this world. John 21 is calling us to reclaim the biblical role, the biblical view of the role of elder. 
which necessarily requires us as believers to avail ourselves to the pastoral care of the church. And brothers and sisters, this isn't limited to when you have some obvious and pressing need, a death in the family, illness, injury. Pastoral care takes many, many forms. Submitting yourself to the leadership of the church shouldn't just be an empty vow that we say, I do too, when we join the church. It should actually mean something to us. It should be something that we take seriously because Scripture takes it seriously. Again, this is the means that God has ordained in His Word to grow His flock into maturity, to ensure their protection and their provision. So please realize that we should see the structure of church leadership as a positive thing for our good. We should understand that this is an important aspect of our life together. When it's done in a biblical manner, which means that when elders lead by example, when they aren't seeking to lord it over the congregation, but have committed themselves to earnestly loving and serving the church in humble reliance on Jesus Christ, then the church is built up and strengthened. Believers are grown up and brought into maturity in Jesus Christ, who is our head. This is what Paul is speaking of when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. I hope that this is the church we want to be at Covenant Presbyterian. So I want to encourage you this morning. I want to plead with you. You need not be uncomfortable or irritated when an elder calls to check in. And this might be simply to get to know you better, to see if you might be available to get lunch or coffee sometime. It, it might be because we heard you are sick or injured. It, it might be to see if there is something, some way that we might serve you. It, it might be to pray with you. It might be to tell you of an opportunity to grow in your faith or to invi invite you to some form of discipleship. It, it might also be to check in because we haven't seen you in several weeks and we are wondering why you are neglecting the normal means of grace by absenting yourself from worship in the Lord's Supper. Regardless of the reason, we're calling because we love you, because we're truly concerned for you in the state of your soul, because we take seriously our calling which the Lord has given us to feed and tend the flock. And let me encourage you, you, you don't have to wait until an elder calls you or pays you a visit. Reach out to us. Invite us to pray for you. Seek our counsel. Ask for our help in, in understanding God's word. Please don't ever, 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 ever think you are bothering us. Brothers and sisters, we're here to serve you. And, and I speak for every elder of this congregation, whether currently installed or not. We're all active elders. We want you to know that we are available to you. And there's nothing more that we delight in than helping you to grow in your faith. So there really is only one point to my sermon this morning. Should be easy to remember. Beloved, be shepherded. Be shepherded by attending worship and sitting under God's word proclaimed.
Be shepherded by availing yourself to the teaching of the church through Sunday school and through weekday Bible studies. By the way, we just, as I mentioned earlier, just started a new Sunday school series this morning. Now is the time to commit yourself to studying God's word. Be shepherded by allowing us to visit you in your times of need and allowing us to to pray for you and to care for you. Be shepherded by heeding our calls to pray and to fast and to study God's word and to commit yourself to loving your fellow members here. And if necessary, be shepherded by submitting yourself to the discipline of the church. This too is a means by which we love you as we seek to restore the sinner. Be shepherded, brothers and sisters, because in doing so, you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in submitting yourself to his rule. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you send your son who is our good shepherd. We thank you that by your sovereign care over our lives, that you lead us to green pastures, that you lead us beside still waters, Lord, that you are with us, providing for us, protecting us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are there, blessing us, encouraging us, sustaining us. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided shepherds, under shepherds in your church to help care for and tend to your flock. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to one another, to submit ourselves to your loving care through your church. And Lord, may you be glorified. May your church be built up, brought to full maturity in Jesus Christ. And may you receive all the praise and glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the word of God, to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again, 